You know when you're walking down the street and you see a Vietnamese restaurant, the chances are it's got some goofy name. Places with names like Pho Shizzle, Good Pho You, Forever Yum, Forever, and this one's really painful, 9021 Pho. It's actually pronounced pho, by the way. Say it with me. Pho. And as silly as it may seem, these puns and restaurants are one of the main ways that Americans actually engage with Vietnamese culture. And in recent years, pho, the definitive Vietnamese noodle soup, has become a pop culture phenomenon, a cheap eats, comfort food staple. A boiling broth full of the beef brisket, and it don't rhyme with yo, so quit the perpetrating there, and get a bowl of Vietnamese noodle soup player. What's up, dude? We eat pho, dude. That's Sabzi from the Seattle hip-hop duo Blue Scholars rapping about pho. With some rice noodles, in some beef broth, basil in the meat, please drown in the hoisin sauce when you want it. So really I don't drown mine in hoisin sauce, but the rest of that was pretty impressive. There are other signs that pho has made it. There are pho eating contests, pho jewelry. Seriously, this one time I got a ring at an urban craft fair and it spells P-H-O. And the biggest bowl of pho is an attraction right here in Seattle. Four pounds of meat, four liters of broth. It's huge. Pho is clearly cool now. And I have to say that it's a little bit of a shock because growing up, it was definitely not cool. Pho was the only thing that my family would ever go out to eat. So we ate mostly at these mom-and-pop shops that had mismatched bowls and silverware and bad restaurant decor. And then there always seemed to be a fish tank that made this, like, awful buzzing sound. These shops seemed to broadcast how different we were. Back in the early 90s, my parents wanted to open a restaurant. We lived in Olympia, and the local mall was a perfect place to get their business started. But at the time, there was a different cuisine from Southeast Asia that was all the rage, Thai food. And that's what the mall owner insisted my parents make. So my Vietnamese parents learned to cook Thai food, and they opened a Thai restaurant, which was kind of absurd when you think about it. But my parents, they totally embody the immigrant hustle. So they did it. But we did sneak one distinctly Vietnamese dish onto the menu. Pha. So it's safe to say that none of us foresaw that pho would become the it dish. But I do know that pho feels like that rare thing that we as a Vietnamese community really own. We brought pho to America, and now it's taking on a life of its own as more non-Vietnamese Americans make it and consume it. Today we're going to look at the origins of pho and how it has come to define who Vietnamese Americans are in their adopted country. I'm Tan Tan, and you're listening to Second Wave, an American story that begins in Vietnam. Support for Second Wave comes from Fisher Plumbing Family of Companies, committed to their communities for over 40 years by supporting youth sports programs, charities for the disadvantaged, and water conservation. Fisher Plumbing offers plumbing, heating, air conditioning, and router services. More at fisherplumbing.com. That's F-I-S-C-H-E-R plumbing.com. Here in Seattle, where I live, there are fuzz shops all over the place. Competition is steep. So... What sets a good bowl of pho from a mediocre one? And what are the stories behind the soup? Who's making our pho? Why are they here? And what drives them to feed others? Hello. Hello. Hi. Hi, Andrea. I decided to talk to a couple Vietnamese-American women who have made their careers out of pho in America. Right, right, right. Hi. Hey. How are you? 
Andrea Nguyen is a cookbook author and consultant. I have all her books on how to make tofu and dumplings, Vietnamese dishes, and banh mi. She wrote a popular story in Lucky Peach last year about the history of pho. Her latest book is called The Pho Cookbook, which is a bestseller on Amazon. I'm meeting her at Fubuck at the corner of Rainier and Jackson in Seattle's Little Saigon neighborhood. And we're joined by my friend Yin Vi Pham, one of the restaurant's owners. She runs Fubuck's three locations with two of her siblings. But this one, this is the flagship restaurant. It stands out on the street corner because it's in the shape of a giant red boat. There's an interesting backstory to its appearance. Andrea asked Envy about it. Is it ironic to your family yes. that they escape by boat and yet here they are having a business in a boat? No, that's the fun part. <laughs> they really, they're really proud of the boat concept, actually. That's the fun part, Envy says. Her family loves this about Fabak. They built the structure from a Mayflower parade float. And then our pho arrives. I love to dip. Anyone like dip? I like dipping with sriracha. I like trying the broth first, but then yes. I do love putting hot sauce in. And then hoisin sauce just to dip the meat. Yes. I like pepper. Do you like pepper? Oh, I'm totally I love a pepper. pepper. Yeah. I'm totally a purist, and I, I, because that broth took a long time to make. So While sipping and slurping, we discuss our favorite ways to eat pho. It's a very personal thing. The basil, but I really, really, really love the lime part of it. Like, don't give me bean sprouts, because it's the biggest waste. You know, or- they're going to spit on the sprouts first. No. <laughs> <laughs> Of course, it's not only how you eat pho, but also what kind of pho. Oh, yeah, this is like a southern-style broth. Andrea explains. So it's a little sweeter than salty. Mm-hmm. It's a style, so you have to find your own personal pho style. So, like, you could possibly, like, test out a potential future partner by going on a pho date and, like, seeing what kind of pho they, they like to eat, maybe how they garnish things, how they do things up. You know, and stuff like that. I mean, I could totally see. And maybe the in-laws, bring the potential in-laws with you. <laughs> How does your husband, how does he eat his pho? He's, he's, he's white, right? He's white, but he's been well-trained and educated <laughs> by my family and me. And he eats it northern style. Andrea is a total pho aficionado. She traveled back to Vietnam to do research for her book. And she says pho started in North Vietnam as a pretty simple dish, saltier and with no garnishes. Once the dish moved south, it got sweeter, and people started adding things like basil and bean sprouts and hot sauce. Andrea's family is from North Vietnam. They fled to the south after Vietnam was divided in two in 1954. The communist north was controlled by the Viet Minh, and the south was run by an anti-communist regime. It's no coincidence that most pho places in the U.S. feature a plate of bean sprouts, Thai basil, with hoisin sauce and sriracha in bottles on the table. And that's because most Vietnamese refugees who came to the U.S. are from South Vietnam. Pho is the national food of Vietnam. People eat it any time of day, for breakfast, lunch, or dinner. And while it's the classic dish, it's still evolving. Pho is also something that hipsters, like in Hanoi, there are like certain pho dishes that they go for nowadays that we don't know about or have yet to know about in the U.S. Like there is um, a chicken pho salad that people go crazy for in Hanoi. And there's also pho noodle rolls and deep fried pho that you would look at and you'd say, oh, my gosh, that belongs in like the state fair because it's pho dipped in batter and deep fried and then you have a stir fry put on top. And so pho in Vietnam is constantly moving forward. 
But Andrea says Americans are also starting to experiment with pho. For example, there's a pho um, beef bun mi dip mm-hmm. that I've seen in Southern California. There's also a young chef down there making a farito. So it's a burrito filled with pho. And there are people, I think there are Vietnamese-American young people in Brooklyn making pho dumplings called fumplings. Yes. And which inspired to make pho, inspired me to make pho potstickers. Because <laughs> like pho can be so many different things because it's about the noodle, it's about the spices, it's about the broth. Let's rewind and go back, before the time of fumplings and furritos. Something changed after the Vietnam War ended and hundreds of thousands of South Vietnamese people fled their homeland. A lot of people who were professionals in Vietnam, they never cooked pho. They had servants who cooked it for them. When my mom and dad lived in Saigon, they were too busy with their jobs to cook, so they always ate out. It wasn't until they moved to America that my mom learned how to cook pho. And I mentioned that to Ian V. Then that makes me think, like, so pho is not just, like, food, but pho was also, like, survival. It's how... I don't know, am I right about this? I mean, pho was about survival for the Vietnamese community. It's just like a sense of identity, something they could... You know when you go anywhere new, you want to safeguard, you want to hold on to something that is familiar, you know? And I think pho was just an easy access point to something that was familiar to what their lives used to be like, right? For Andrea, pho goes way beyond identity, and it means something even deeper. It became a way to connect with her family, still living in Vietnam. One of the things that the Fao journey has afforded me is dealing with some of these issues, um, such as communism. We're about to hit on a touchy subject. Like so many Vietnamese families, Andrea's was split between those who followed the communists and those who followed the pro-democratic South, which was backed by the Americans. My parents are in their 80s, and there is no way that they will ever go back to Vietnam because that country is no longer theirs. They will not identify with it. And yet we have relatives who were staunchly communists that were separated from my father in the 40s who became extremely high-ranking people in the Communist Party and Army in Hanoi. So for this trip, I went back and I connected with my cousin who's like in his 50s now. And he was born and raised in Hanoi and was a staunch follower like the rest of his family there but we bonded over pho and I talked to him about what pho was like during the Vietnam War in the 60s and the 70s and he told me about like the hardship of not having decent noodles of like having really crappy pho broth because the Hanoi government took over um, the pho shops and nationalize them. And so that was a way for us to talk about family and food and skirt politics, even though like he's actually no longer a member of the party. um, And he's very disillusioned by it. But you know, it was a way for us to connect. So I think that for people who have issues, especially when they're going back, and even from like 1.5 or second generation, One of the ways that you can get around kind of political animosities is to start talking about the food. We don't talk about political divides in our families because it's too difficult. But pho and food, it is something that we can all talk about and have different perspectives on. We'll be right back. You're listening to Second Wave. I'm Tan Tan. 
So Andrea Nguyen, Ian V. Pham, and I, we keep talking and we keep eating. And one thing we get stuck in is this idea that pho has to be cheap, like less than $10. What does that say about us as like Vietnamese people, like in America, if we're not willing to charge what this food is worth, you know? Like, are we always going to be cheap eats and that's it? I hope not, because... um they're willing to go and pay $14, $15 a bowl for ramen. Mm-hmm. They're going to pay 20 bucks for five raviolis. But if you ask them to pay for a really well-made bowl of pho or um, Chinese soup dumplings, and I make both of those things, and I know how much labor it takes, but they're, not, they're always saying, you know, that was such a good deal. I, I got, like, this huge bowl of pho, and I got all these dumplings, and it was, like, less than $10. Mm-hmm. I was like, someone's paying for that. And, you know, you want cheap eats. You get cheap quality. Someone is paying for that because there's labor in the back. It takes the same amount of work to make that bowl of pho and those dumplings as it does to make a bowl of ramen or raviolis. And I think that we need to stop doing that to ourselves because cheap is not necessarily good. Mm -hmm. It's not good for the community. It keeps the community down. Ian V is on the other side of this dilemma. She inherited a business from her first-generation refugee parents who've always catered to working-class customers. Honestly, one side of me wants to keep it approachable, affordable, where the newly immigrated, new refugees can go to my fun place and not feel uncomfortable and be like, oh, I can afford that. Because not everyone is making 80K or plus. I want to make this food approachable and affordable so that everyone can eat. Like if you go into any of my restaurants, there's not one niche of people. Different cultures or different people, different generations, able to share this food. You know, and that's kind of like my meat idea, idealistic, but, and wanting to keep it affordable so people, could, people can approach it. And like we also have an advantage because we own our property. You know, like there's so many different factors that come into pricing. There are no clear answers. So what's next? We know pho is cool, and that's great, right? But now everybody wants a piece of it. Andrea explains an infamous moment when pho went viral. Last year, there was this thing called Pho-gate. So Pho-gate was um, a video that Bon Appetit magazine made. There is as much thought that goes into cheap, home-style food as there is in fine dining. Where they had a white chef who was very earnest. My name's Tyler Aiken. This is Stock Restaurant in the Fishtown neighborhood of Philadelphia. And I have to say that I think that the video was poorly made and poorly produced, where he was telling people how to eat pho. When people come in and you put the bowl of soup in front of them and immediately they squirt poison and sriracha in it, all of the little decisions that are made along the way about seasoning are completely destroyed. Now, this might seem perfectly fine to a lot of people, but to me and others in the Vietnamese community, it was really shocking to see Bon Appetit choose of all the Vietnamese restaurants that they could have gone to for this feature, to see them choose a white chef and have that person explain to us how to eat pho, it just felt wrong. It felt like Vietsplaining. And he was telling people, don't put sriracha and hoisin sauce into it because it'll ruin the broth. And I don't think the magazine knew its audience very well because its audience erupted. And much of the eruption was made by um, vocal Asian people. And 
all of a sudden, I was being contacted by a millennial news organization called Mike.com to weigh in on it. And I was like, shit, you know, I was like, should I like get on their bad lists, you know, or the magazine? And I just thought, am I going to shut up and not say anything and be a good, quiet Asian or I'm going to speak up? Because if I'm going to own this subject, if I'm going to write about it in a book, then I need to take ownership of it and say something. So I did. And then I ended up writing something for NPR. And, you know, it's like, I don't want to be the poster child for cultural appropriation, but I think that we need more people at the table to talk about food and culture. And, you know, someone, you know people like you, Tan, and Envy, like we, we all were like, grew up here, we speak English just fine, and we can write too. <laughs> so we should be invited to participate in that conversation. Mm-hmm. Are you ever worried that it's being appropriated by non-Vietnamese or that we're losing control of this dish that we love so much that is so much a part of our identity? I'm not afraid because I think that as long as I can teach people what the foundations of pho are and its history and how it's made, and there are many different ways of making pho too, um, you know, whether you're dockering up canned broth, where you're using a pressure cooker or a long uh, simmer. If people know the foundations of pho and then they go on to cook pho really well and then also to eat it as an informed diner, then I don't think that's going, that's diluting what pho is, but it's actually spreading the news of pho. I'm like an evangelist and an enabler. <laughs> so I think, because what happens is if we don't, if we don't share information, this is one of the, the, the things. So if we don't share information and share our techniques, then we're doing a disservice to ourselves. We're actually like putting ourselves into extinction. I mean, it's all like, you know, if we're all in the boat together, then when the tide rises, we'll all rise. Since that conversation with Andrea Nguyen and Envy Pham, I've eaten a lot of pho, at least twice a week. And I have a new appreciation for it, more so than before. I'm actually much more intentional about my routine. I sip the broth first, and I'm a lot more careful about adding the limes and any garnishes right away. And at the end of the day, eat your pho however you want. Like Andrea said, find your own pho style. But I hope you'll at least think about the journey it took for Vietnam's national dish to get here. I'm Tan Tan. Thanks for listening to Second Wave, an American story that begins in Vietnam. Do you have any personal stories about pho you'd like to share with us? Let us know. Write us at secondwave at KUOW.org. Second Wave is a production of KUOW and PRX. Caroline Chamberlain and Whitney Henry Lester are our producers. Jim Gates is our editor. Music in this episode is by Blue Dot Sessions and Sabzi. Support for Second Wave comes from Fisher Plumbing Family of Companies, committed to their communities for over 40 years by supporting youth sports programs, charities for the disadvantaged, and water conservation. Fisher Plumbing offers plumbing, heating, air conditioning, and router services. More at fisherplumbing.com. That's F-I-S-C-H-E-R plumbing.com.